Hello. Welcome to Rusty Sonnets, a podcast that will take an old poem and while it might not get you full-on academically adept at uh, your reading of that poem, I will at least aim to get you pub quiz ready. My name is Niall. I am a poet. I am also a teacher of poetry at a university. I also host um, a regular poetry night at the Poetry Cafe in Covent Garden, Poetry Unplugged. It's been running since about 1997, no, 1996, and I've been hosting it since 2005, every week, every week. And I've also edited a few collections of poetry for a small publisher called Flipped Eye. So the basic theme is that I'm going to take an old poem once a week and I will read it to you. I'll give a bit of background. I'll read it to you. And then I'll give you a sort of conventional reading, a conventional critique and appraisal of that poem. There'll be a point where I'll go from giving quite a conventional an academically sound analysis of the poem. And then I'm going to go off on one. And I, I always have a tendency to go off on one. So I thought that before I go off on one, I should have some kind of sign, some kind of symbol to let you know that we are no longer... I mean, hopefully you're not using this for your revision notes anyway. Do not use this podcast for your revision notes. Do you understand me? Good. But um, if you are, then you definitely don't want to start taking things too seriously after you hear this noise. Right, so when you hear Ric Flair, the great oral poet, um, the wrestler Ric Flair shout out woo that means Niall is going off on one now it's all going to be blazing hot takes from Niall about this poem and we have abandoned the conventional academic way of looking at the poem so before we look at our poem for today I just want to quickly give a little bit of background why I called this thing rusty sonnets the reason why is because there was a post on social media many years ago from a, a big poetry organization I will not say which one it was that spoke with great enthusiasm about multimedia poetry and performance poetry and artist collaborations with poets. And it is all really exciting stuff. And new stuff is absolutely brilliant. So so their, their post said uh, it celebrated all these exciting new developments of poets. But then it said, um, you know, unlike rusty sonnets, it used the term rusty sonnets as a sort of dismissive term for all the old poetry that's just rubbish and old and it will not enrich our lives and so I, I I thought about that term rusty sonnets I was writing quite a lot of sonnets at the time myself and I just found it interesting I just found it uh, I just thought okay it's a dismissive term but it's I now find myself actually using that term I guess because if something's rusty it doesn't mean the thing itself is useless it doesn't mean the thing itself is worthless it just means that the thing itself has not been cared for the thing itself has been allowed to be to, to occupy a state of disrepair and maybe all it needs is a bit of love, a bit of spit and polish, a bit of um, Mr. Sheen applied to it and it will be just gleaming just fine. We just have to approach it from the right angle and we can appreciate it again. And just one more little thing, because I read an interesting interview with a spoken word poet last night 
And again, I am not dissing spoken word poetry. It's fantastic. It's engaging lots of people in poetry that wouldn't be engaged otherwise. I think when we're doing that, whether they're Instagram poets, whether they're spoken word poets, you have to be a proper misery guts or a proper elitist to have a bad attitude towards that. They're not doing any damage to the poetry that you like if you like literary poetry. They're just getting more people involved in more kinds of poetry. But this um, poet said something really interesting that I sometimes hear echoed in my students as well, um, which is that she said that she tried poetry on the page, but she couldn't really connect with it. Um, but when she heard spoken word, she felt that it was for her. She felt that connection. They spoke her language and she felt that she could find a voice herself and create stuff, which is brilliant. But I would actually say rather than try and convince you that these older poems are written in your language or that your old these older poems should immediately relate to you i think what's good about these poems is that they don't immediately relate to you that there is something strange about them maybe about the attitude of the poet maybe there's something strange in the tone that the poet is using maybe it's the language itself um, the, the language perhaps could have been quite casual and colloquial in its day that's what a lot of people say about shakespeare but but now it feels very strange and we mistake that sort of dated strangeness for the language being higher speech. As my Irish relatives would say, um, we mistake it for something highfalutin, um, something that thinks it's above us. And that's not necessarily the case with a lot of older poetry, um, although sometimes it is the case. Um, there is sometimes the idea that the poetry is a higher form of language. Um, but what I think is good about a poetry perhaps not being immediately accessible to us or being quite strange or even maybe something about that poem that pushes us away is that we can if we try to understand it a little bit more we often change our own vantage point in doing so we often slightly change our own understandings of language and other things in doing so and that's why i think it's worth the effort um, i was thinking of that amy adams film um, or directed by Denis Villeneuve or Denis Villeneuve uh, with Jeremy Renner as well called Arrival, a science fiction film uh, about an alien spacecraft that lands on the Earth and they start communicating in this beautiful sort of written in, in air, written in fog, calligraphic language. And Amy Adams is a language expert who's, who's called in to try and translate this language. And without spoiling it too much, you can skip 30 seconds if you like. But what happens is in Amy Adams understanding the alien's language, it changes her perception of reality. And in fact, it changes her perception of time. Much like learning another language, another language can change our perception of reality. Um, so many foreign languages have different words for things that we only have one word for. And I think old poetry is a similar thing. Sometimes when we really make that effort to sort of confront that strangeness of a language and the strangeness of a voice and the strangeness of the attitude and the vantage point of a poem, we, we find something interesting. I reckon I'm speaking too quickly right now. I hope I haven't lost anyone. We still haven't even looked at the poem and I'm sure about 10 minutes in, I, I can't see from my clock. Um, I'm gonna leave timestamps on all of these. So if you wanna skip my introductory waffle, that's fine. You can go straight to the poem. Um, but also when I read out the poem, don't worry about understanding it right away. Don't worry, it might seem strange. There might be something about the poem that pushes you away. But just listen to it, have some patience. And then if, after you've listened to the analysis of the poem, you feel like going back and listening to it again, you can. 
The poem I'm going to read today is Sonnet 66 by William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare's sonnets are very famous as sonnets about love. The sonnet itself is synonymous with love. Now, while people today in the modern era still write sonnets, people write sonnets about everything. But traditionally, the sonnet definitely comes from this idea of love. Um, the first sonnets were Italian sonnets and... Um, they were written, one of the most famous Italian sonneteers was a, was a gentleman called Petrarch, who chose a woman called Laura as his muse. Petrarch's love for Laura isn't just the love for a young woman. It, it's something bigger than that. Um, he takes it from some classical poets, some Roman poets. The, the use of the word Laura comes from the, the laurel plant. Um, poets who, who were great poets would be crowned with laurels in ancient times. And so Laura wasn't just a symbol of romantic love, um, the woman that he was chasing, the woman he wanted to be with. Laura, Laura also came from laurel and it embodied ultimate achievement as a poet. So ultimate achievement as a poet was was equal with the achievement of romantic love. Um, we find this now. Um, we have a poet laureate. Again, that comes from the laurel. The, the laurel as that symbol, the laurel crown as a symbol of, of victory and achievement with a poet. Um, recently, Simon Armitage wrote, uh, the, the contemporary poet Simon Armitage wrote an article about the poet laureateship. I think he, he kind of really wants it. He really wants it. He's been denied a few times. And he's being very patient, but I think Simon is almost, I don't know him, I think he might kill to get that laureateship. I'm not sure, but there's something underneath his attitude, don't tell him I said this, that I think he will burn down houses, he will assassinate, he will murder, and he will smile as he murders until he gets that laureateship. Anyway, Simon Armitage, he wrote an article and he even used the term um, if you want to wear that crown, you must do these, the, the laurel crown, if you want to wear the laurel crown. So the laurel crown is that symbol of poetic achievement, such as becoming poet laureate. So that's the tradition of the sonnet. Um, the sonnet became popular. I think um, Geoffrey Chaucer translated some of Petrarch's sonnets himself, but it became very popular in the Elizabethan court. And many, many high-born noblemen and uh, noble women, I'm afraid, although um, Queen Elizabeth herself was meant to have tried her hand at the sonnet. Um, but uh, the rest of the court, mainly made up of noblemen, they would present sonnets to the court, whether in their smaller aristocratic circles or whether they were in the company of the Queen. And the sonnets would often celebrate feminine beauty there would be a, a standard of feminine beauty I won't talk about now. I'll talk about in a later podcast when I when I deal with another sonnet. Um, but this ideal of feminine beauty was called the blazon. And that would be the thing that would, would uh, say that a woman's teeth were like pearls, that um, her, her lips were like rose petals, uh, that her eyes um, would shine like suns, that her hair would be golden thatches of straw. Um, these weren't thought of as cliches at the time. These were conventions. I think there's a difference. Cliches, quite a, a modern neuroses. So 
Shakespeare's sonnets are perhaps the most famous sonnets, and we we associate them with romantic love. For instance, um, one copy of Shakespeare's sonnets that I bought had um, for its cover roses and rose petals and these very cliched ideas of love. And Shakespeare's sonnets are often presented as poems that can be written inside a Valentine's card and that can immediately be associated with traditional ideas of romantic love. Now, this is not a hot take, um, but the first thing people who approach Shakespeare's sonnets find out, and they're often surprised by, even though it really is common knowledge, is that the first 125, 126 sonnets, I can't remember the exact number, are all addressed to a young man. And then a few sonnets after that are addressed to a woman, a dark lady as she is known. I will not talk about her in this one because I want to deal with those poems at a later podcast. But so 120-something sonnets of Shakespeare's, the first 120-something, this is not Romeo talking to Juliet, this is Shakespeare writing to another man. And Shakespeare... People, look, I don't think there's much room for debate about this, to tell the truth. There's, people can be willfully naive about a man who writes 120 what's it poems about a younger man. Now, to be fair, there might be more than one young man. This might be a, a compilation of poems written to many young men, um, some of whom might have actually been patrons um, some who might have been men in young men in high standing in the court. And Shakespeare was definitely after their affections. And he seems to flip-flop between um, attitudes where he is being the concerned older man trying to offer advice to the young man, while at the same time um, praising the young man's beauty. So there's a lot of telling off the young man as an older man, but at the same time, he seems to be desperate for the attention of this young man. Um, I think Shakespeare is wildly infatuated with this young man. So to give you a slight idea of the structure of these young men's sonnets, I won't go into this too much. They start off with some sonnets that are just about procreation, where um, for the first, I think, 17 sonnets, um, Shakespeare is just, man, you've got to have kids because, yeah, you're gorgeous, but your looks will fade. Well, you, you are so hot right now, but at some point you can't help it. You know, cosmetic surgery and Botox have not been invented yet. So you're going to be a minger at some point, especially being that it's the Elizabeth, Elizabethan times. And I've got a feeling people didn't age that well back then. Um, so, um, you know, there weren't many sort of, I, I, I don't know, there weren't many um, health food shops and stuff like that around either so um, not many boots chemists selling moisturizer and stuff like that people were living um, in an environment where people were throwing their poo out of windows onto the street so so I got a feeling due to all of these things people didn't age very well 
Um, not you know, we age a lot better now, but back then, I think I think the window of beauty was a or conventional beauty was a was a lot shorter for people. So the message of his poems is: Hey, you're absolutely gorgeous. You better have some kids because your looks will fade. But hey, if you have a beautiful child, then that child will still bring joy. In fact, you can gaze upon that child in the same way that you fondly gaze upon yourself, and we all gaze upon you. And you also give us something beautiful in the world. The beauty carries on if you have a kid. He just keeps banging that drum for those first 17 or so sonnets. Then from Sonnet 18, very famous one, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, he changes his attitude and now he's talking about how he create works. He can create works of art and these works of art will live on and these works of art will celebrate the beauty of the young man and the young man will live on. I think it's quite an interesting point to make here that we don't know who the young man is, but we know who Shakespeare is. So that hasn't, well, the beauty perhaps lives on in the poem. The young man himself has become something archetypal. He's become something mythological because we don't know the young man or the young men as individuals. We just know this, this symbol of them, them being a symbol of beauty, of fleeting beauty and the fleeting beauty again of a young man. Um, so, it goes on after this and we get the rival sonnets. So it's it's not just that this young man is someone that Shakespeare is very fond of and writing lots of beautiful sonnets about how wonderful he is while trying to tell him off as well. Um, other poets are writing sonnets about the young man too. And it seems that a lot of people are very fond of the young man stroke young men. And uh, Shakespeare is not the only rooster in the... I was going to say hen house, but of course we're not dealing with a hen here. We're dealing with the opposite of hen, and we know what that is, and I'm not going to say it because I'm trying to keep this family friendly. So um, it goes on like this. And the sonnet I want to read, it's part of where, where Shakespeare just seems to be in a really bad mood. Oh, and before uh, before I read this, um, I haven't really told you what a sonnet is in a technical sense. It's a 14-line poem. I'm going to try and keep this really simple. It's a 14-line poem. It normally rhymes. It's normally written in a meter um, known as iambic pentameter. Um, I could get really technical about iambic pentameter, but iambic pentameter basically sounds like this. Dee-da, 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 dee-da. Dee-da, 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 dee-da. And it carries on like that. Shakespeare wrote in iambic pentameter a lot of the time. Um, so it's 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 just five dee-da's. You might notice that the, 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 the D sounds a bit softer and the da sounds a bit stronger. So if I go dee-da, 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 you get the idea of one sound being softer, one being stronger. And these five sets of these pairs of sounds um, you'll find in each line. Um, the, the one that sounds softer is called an unstressed syllable and the one that sounds more emphatic is the stressed syllable. One more thing about the Shakespearean sonnet is that um, Shakespeare, um, a lot of people when they read the Shakespearean sonnets, even when the 14 lines are presented one after the other with no gaps, people tend to divide it into quatrains. That's groups of four lines. So it's it's three groups of four lines. And then finally something, um, the poem is ended with two lines that rhyme with each other. Uh, they're called a couplet, a final rhyming couplet. 
and what would happen the basic structure of a shakespearean sonnet would follow like this that each the the argument would change a little bit with each group of four lines and then finally the cover the couplet at the end would summarize the 12 lines that came before but the really clever Shakespeare poems, and I think the ones we're really fond of, would sometimes change things. They would introduce something new that was maybe carried on in the next sonnet, for instance. Or it would have a clever little twist or even a contradiction to deny all that has just been said. So when we read Shakespeare's sonnets, we really get a sense of uh, the four, first four lines, then the next set of four lines saying something slightly different or maybe developing it in a different way. Another four lines doing it the same. And then finally, two lines summarizing things or moving things on or even changing the subject. Um, when you when you see Shakespeare's plays, uh, they're written in blank verse. So they're written in iambic pentameter. But the, of the iambic pentameter doesn't um, it doesn't rhyme but sometimes at the end of a speech or the end of a scene you will get a rhyming couplet uh, here this Duncan for it is an L that sends thee to heaven or to hell and it was just a way of kind of putting an end stop on a scene to sort of really giving a sense a punchy sense of finality so that's often how Shakespeare uses the couplet okay I'm going to read the poem now so like I said before it might sound a bit strange you don't have to get it right away, okay? Sonnet 66 by William Shakespeare Tired with all these for restful death I cry As to behold desert a beggar born And needy nothing trimmed in jollity And purest faith unhappily forsworn And gilded honour shamefully misplaced and maiden virtue rudely strumpeted, and right perfection wrongfully disgraced, and strength by limping sway disabled, and art made tongue-tied by authority, and folly doctor-like controlling skill, and simple truth miscalled simplicity, and captive good attending captain ill. Tired with all these, from these would I be gone, Save that, to die, I leave my love alone. So yeah, um, let's look at this poem. Maybe you found the language quite strange. Um, it can be divided into, it could really, you could condense this to two points. The whole poem, the whole 14 lines really could be condensed to two points. Um, point number one would just be the world is awful it's awful or to, to quote from lego movie 2 everything's not awesome so it's him saying everything's not awesome for about 12 lines now the first four lines if we're really going for that idea of the each group of four lines saying something slightly different um he's there's a general sense of unhappiness in the first lines then 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 the next um four lines take a more moral standpoint when he talks about honor being misplaced and and virtue being strump trumpeted and perfection being disgraced but he moves on to the next four lines which are still saying everything's not awesome but now he's he's looking at society he's looking at authority um he's looking at all the things that are wrong with the things that are higher up in the societal scale and then so so he's done that and then 
the the second part of the poem. So if I'm saying everything's, we've just got four, three different variations in four line stanzas of everything not being awesome. And then in the, in the final couplet, tired with all these, from these would I be gone, save that to die, I leave my love alone. There we go. We all understand that. He He's saying, much like in Hamlet's soliloquy, Man, I could just do myself in right now. I could just jump in front of the, the nearest, I was going to say bus, horse and wagon, or something like that. Um, I could jump into the Thames, and I'm sure back in Elizabethan times, you wouldn't last very long jumping into that then. Uh, not that you'd last very long jumping into it today either. Um, but, but it says, I can't kill myself, because because I would make you, I, I, you would be alone. I would leave my love alone. Um, so, so let's look at some of the lines that might have confused you. So I think one that stood out for me would be, uh, I think, I think I get the first lines quite easily. Cause even, even I, Mr. Teacher dude, I, I also get confused by some of his lines when I revisit these poems. Um, but yes, um, as to behold dessert, a beggar born. Dessert is not obviously, I mean, we're not talking about sort of, um, it's spelt, you know, dessert as in desert when you read it. And so it's definitely not um, dessert as in, I don't know, an apple turnover or something like that. You know, that a beggar has basically been presented at your, your table, but instead of Hagen Dars, you, you've basically got a newborn beggar. Um, things were bad in Elizabethan times, but they weren't that bad. Um, dessert, is, it comes from deserving. So, so even though it's spelt like desert, um, he's not saying a desert is like a beggar. He's saying dessert, deservingness, the kind of what we expect to come about. So if we did, we, you know, the, the virtuous, the reward for virtuous action. Um, so dessert is a beggar born. So we are not being rewarded um, for our virtue. To quote the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, he's, he's pretty much saying we're being punished for our virtues, if anything. Um, I just love the line and maiden. So we move. So we move from this general sense of things being bad to a moral sense of things being bad and corrupted. Um, and so gilded honor, shamefully misplaced, and then maiden virtue, rudely strumpeted. I love strumpet being used as a verb. Yeah, you know, I've been strumpeted. You strumpeted yourself. That is fantastic. There's something quite joyful about it. Um, although rudely strumpeted. Uh, the adverb rudely. Is it really needed? I, I know I'm being critical about Shakespeare and I'm sure it helps the line to scan. But I mean, strumpeted seems to do the job well enough without saying rudely strumpeted. If Shakespeare was in my creative writing class, even though he's a 10 million times better poet than I will ever be, I probably would have pointed that out. Um and we carry on. Um, another line that might trip people up is and strength by limping sway disabled, which is a very strange line. You might also notice I pronounced it disabled just to keep the idea of the meter and the rhythm and the dum dee dum dee dum dee dum dee da um, iambic pentameter quality of it. So um, strength by limping sway disabled. The line, the word that might trip us all up is the word sway. Um, this isn't someone who's limping and swaying about. This is more kind of sway is to be convinced. I swayed your opinion. So um, by limping or by being made to length, strength is is rendered into a sort of a, into a disabled sense. Um, so it's it's a bit ableist, obviously. But again, we live in more enlightened times. 
Um, and finally, the, the final sort of four lines of these, these first 12 lines, and art made tongue-tied by authority and folly, doctor-like, controlling skill. And this beautiful line here that still applies to so many things and simple truth miscalled simplicity. Isn't that right? You know, we dismiss things for being simple, um, but sometimes it is simple truth and we shouldn't dismiss it as being simplicity. And captive good attending captain ill. Obviously, yeah, the good being made to serve the bad. I love the idea of Captain Ill, though. Captive good. Good as a captive. Captain Ill just sounds like the world's worst or possibly best superhero. So we have this idea. He's, it, as we said, it's just the general. It's the same thing. Everything sucks. Everything sucks. Everything sucks. Everything sucks. Times 12. Um, and then we finally get these final lines where it becomes a love poem. So we don't think of it as a love poem until we get to these final lines where, of course, it is turned into a love poem. Tired with all these, from these would I be gone in the final life to save that to die. I leave my love alone. Now, I feel myself venturing towards uh, going off on one or hot take territory. Um, so I'm getting Rick ready. I'm getting the wrestler Rick Flair ready to shout out woo because I'm I'm venturing, but I don't think I'm there yet. And that is, if we read this as a conventional love poem, it's all right. It works as a conventional love poem. If it was a poem written to Shakespeare's wife, it would be lovely. I think we would we would enjoy it. It would make us feel warm. It did, does feel like the kind of poem, apart from the threats of, of, of killing yourself, um, you know, apart from that, apart from saying the world is awful, um, it's, it's, it's quite a beautiful expression of love, isn't it? You know, if this was for your lifetime companion, the father or mother of your children to say, you know, that, oh, the world's getting me down, but I don't want to leave you alone. So I'm here, I'm staying with it. I'm putting up with it because I want you to be happy. That's lovely. I think it's lovely, but we don't read it like that. And I don't think I'm going off on one when I say we have to read this in the context of being one of the poems written to the fair youth, to the young man. And from what we learn about all these rivals and the young man having, the young man is not shy for admirers or company. Um, I don't think he is going to be left alone if Shakespeare has had enough of all of this. And I think there's a little bit of a guilt trip going on here. I think the poem, when we place it within the context of the young man poems, it becomes a bit more sinister. And I don't think I'm going off on one to say this. I think that the poems have been placed in a kind of narrative order because that's the kind of guy that Shakespeare was. He liked to tell a story. They might have been written at different times. They might have been written for different people. But he's very aware of how the general reader would read this when these poems are placed together. And so I think that I think the poem is more of a guilt trip. I think it's more, I'm miserable. Look at me, I'm miserable. The world is miserable. Oh, but I'm hanging on for you. I'm hanging on for you. If you noticed this, you've noticed how miserable I am, but I care about you. Do you see how much I care about you and you not being left alone? Because even though all these other people admire you, there'll be a loneliness that you would feel if I was gone. I just think there's an edge to it. I just think there really is. And because there is an edge to it, ironically, the poem is less lovely but I think that edge makes it a better poem. I really do. So, you know what? Rick, let's do it. Okay, so I look back and I think about... This poem makes... A lot of the sonnets, they make me wince. 
they make me because they remember they remind me of times mainly in my 20s and maybe in my teens um when i was a bit obsessed with someone when i would form a massive infatuation with someone i look back at it now and I'm, ooh, ooh. it really gives me the shudders it really gives me the cringe as as it should as it should but it's necessary but i um i remember how miserable it is that you're not in love because because you're miserable um you're, you're making life miserable for yourself and a lot of the times you you become kind of pathetic to the other person but i do think maybe there's a lot of you out there maybe maybe reading this poem um it gets you to sort of think about maybe being maybe you're in this situation right now and i'm not a, i'm not a therapist i'm not a an expert on mental health but i would say man take a step back take a step back I don't think you're in a good place. I don't think you're in a good place for either person. And what you need to do is get away. And maybe it sounds crazy, but I know it's easier said than done. But forget about this person. Probably meet someone else more suited. Um, if you feel like this, then it's not right. It's not right. You need to get away. Um, I, I think about Shakespeare as well. Look, look, I'm not I'm not getting back to anything academic here. OK. We finished with our conventional reading of a poem. I'm sure there's lots of things I've missed, but there's other sonnets and we can hit those beats when we read the other sonnets. But um, for now, Rick, that's that's good. That's a good point, Mr. Flair. He's styling and profiling over there. But um, man, I think Shakespeare just I know we have the evidence of the sonnets, um, but, but I think Shakespeare What's interesting is Shakespeare's a middle-aged man when he's writing this. He's an older man. He shouldn't be getting like this. It's weird that someone's getting like this at this age. Um, I think Shakespeare's an older man now, and I think um, he must have been miserable. I have no idea. There's only one sonnet in the whole sequence that's, I think, written to his wife, to Anne Hathaway, and it's obviously an earlier sonnet. It's stylistically different, in metrically different to the other poems. Um, and it seems maybe if Shakespeare was a gay man, for instance, that, that he he never got that rewarding love in his life. Now, maybe that's what spurred him on to write these brilliant, amazing works of art. Although, obviously, there are people that don't believe he wrote it or believe that he had help from other people in writing. I, I don't want to entertain those right now because it's it's important to other people and I respect that, but it's not important to me. Um, but I just get this idea of someone who's miserable. Someone who genuinely finds no satisfaction in love and maybe maybe finding satisfaction in love and being happy doesn't make good poetry. I don't know. Maybe our misery, maybe one good thing about our misery is we can write good poems about it. So um, I'm going to leave my hot take there. I think I think it's time for me to finish. But I just think, yeah, I, we, we get this idea that, that Shakespeare's misery has gifted us with some of the greatest art that we will ever know. Um, I hope you enjoyed that poem. You can go back and listen to the reading of the poem because of the time signatures. Um, you can read the poem online. I'll put a link up for it. And I hope you enjoyed this. I enjoyed talking. I think I went a bit too fast. I'm going to try and slow down. I thought I was really going to make this something where I could speak to the person who knew nothing about poetry. And I think I, I went a bit off on one in more ways than one. So I think in future installments of these, um, I'm going to try and just calm down a little bit maybe not do this so soon after i've had my morning coffee um, but i hope you enjoyed it i really enjoyed speaking to you guys i'm going to try and come back in a week in the meantime if you want to share this you can share it if you want to give me any feedback or advice you can contact me via twitter um, poet nile p-o-e-t-n-i-a-l-l-p-o-e-t-n-i-a-l-l poet nile at twitter and just give me some feedback or maybe there's a poem an old poem you'd like me to look at 
um, oh, oh, oh um, next time I'll give you what I consider to be an old poem and what my cut-off point is. That's something to get you to listen next time. But for now, um, if you've listened all this way, I'm really grateful that you listened. If you want to share it, please share it. If you want to feedback to me and tell me something that could be better about it, maybe I need to calm down and not drink so much coffee. Um, but but anyway, thank you for listening to it. And hopefully I'll do another one of these in a week's time and you might be around to listen to it. Bye bye. <laughs>